Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature Podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm talking with Harm Yan Longala. Harm is an English teacher and coordinator of his school's bilingual program in Sassenheim, the Netherlands. In addition, he's also a marker for the IBDP English A course. In the episode, we discuss the best text he's ever read, studied or taught and why, an introduction to his career to date and current position at Rhineland's Lyceum, Harm's approach to balancing canonised writers with new or Dutch voices in the IBDP curriculum, the specific challenges that Rhineland students face in English and how the English department combats this, the part technology plays in delivering the English curriculum at Harm's school, Harm's work-life balance and how living in Sassenheim or the Netherlands affects this, and finally, recommendations for resources that teachers can use to improve. Thanks again to Harm for giving up a portion of his summer very early in the morning to chat with me about education in the Netherlands and the IB more broadly. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you usually get them and or give me a follow on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK if you'd like to be kept abreast of this sort of educational chat. Okay, Harm, uh, can we just talk by, uh, start rather by me asking you what's the best text you've ever read, studied, uh, or taught, uh, and why, please? Yeah, cheers. Uh, it's one of those questions that sort of late night birthday parties sometimes uh, <laughs> end up in, and I never know what to answer. Um, I guess um, one of my first experiences teaching uh, in the IB program was uh, the previous program, which had then just been introduced, and we taught Frankenstein to uh, to a bunch of Dutch kids who'd only uh, heard of the monster and sort of saw this this green hawk like uh, Boris Karloff creature. I had no idea what it was uh, like. Um, and since I was teacher in training and teaching, I had a lot of time to prepare all my classes. So. I really, really enjoyed doing that. We did court sessions in which students were able to, um, um, I don't know, rule on on who was to blame for what happened. Um, It was really good fun. We combined it with uh, journalism. So they also wrote articles on the court cases and they wrote articles on what had been uh, going on. And that was really interesting. And also it gave me an opportunity to, uh, to watch um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show with them mm. and uh, throw that in. And it stuck because I still get invited by those students to come to uh, viewings whenever they're, they're <laughs> seeing it. That's good. Um, that's a tough text to teach, but yeah, that that's, um, yeah, it is a good one for kind of like branching out into other um, sort of interdisciplinary writing tasks and things like that. Um, you kind of just mentioned there, obviously, that you teach uh, Dutch students, um, but uh, you're currently working at a place called uh, Ryland's Lyceum in Sassenheim. Can you just give us like a brief introduction to your career and your current position there? Right, yeah. So I've been there 10 years and it's the only school I've ever worked at. So the, the career overview is, uh, is relatively <laughs> short. Um, I, I came in as an intern um, and, and, and started out in IB straight away. Um, we, we, we 
teach IB as an add-on course. So students, they take the Dutch curriculum um, and they take Dutch final exams, but there's about 130 schools in the Netherlands that do a bilingual stream. They offer a bilingual stream to students, which means that when they come in age 12, they can decide to take all of their subjects in English. Mm. And then after six years in secondary school, they sit their IB exams in May as basically an extra exam. And it's really extra because it always uh, falls in the May break that we have in the first week of May. So they have to come to school in their in the holiday. Um, so my position as an, as an English teacher, I'm an IB examiner. Um, um, I did the, uh, the IOs this year, and I'm also the coordinator for the bilingual department, which is a position I've held for three years now. Mm. And how common yeah. is it harm in, 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 um, in the Netherlands for, um, the students to make that choice, you know, to, to do it in a, like it, all their subjects in English, like what percentage or what fraction of students are doing that would you say it's a it's a difficult question because there's a, a stratified tiered system of education there are five different levels of secondary education and students are selected very early on and it's mm. it's been subject to quite intense debate um, mm. also you know looking at how, how equitable um is an educational system if you select students from such an early age mm. um so then 20% sit the, uh, take the, the FAVEO, which is the sort of the pre-university course level of six years. And then the bilingual stream is, the, is most common at that level. I would say maybe in Holland, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's 130 schools I know. We have about 300 students in, the, in that stream over all six years. I, I, I can't really give you a number, but it's... <laughs> That's now, quite a significant amount, though, I think, to be, I don't know, to be taking a, uh, to be taking subjects in a completely foreign language. That's quite a, like an impressive feat as a nation, I suppose. So everyone in Holland has to take English and everyone has to um, take English as a final exam subject. And the mm. same is true for Dutch, obviously. Um in fact, it is mandatory to take English in primary school already. And some schools start teaching English to children when they're four or five. There's no set rule. Um, but I mean, yeah, Holland is only a small country. Um, we do a lot of trading. We pride ourselves on, on being able to speak many languages. Everyone has to also sit French and German for a few years at least. Mm. Um, and then there are schools that offer you know, Spanish or um, some, in some schools, Turkish or Arabic. So it's, it's, it's fairly heavily language oriented. So yes, it is an impressive feat maybe, but it's also something we're used to. Um, and one of the advantages of being a small country is that things like TV shows aren't dubbed because it's too expensive, they're subtitled. Uh-huh. So we're, we're used to hearing a lot of English as well. So my, my sister-in-law, for instance, she passed her English orals uh, in her final exam by just repeating quotes she'd learned on Friends. <laughs> yeah. That's good. 
Um, in terms of like the uh, because if you've got um, if the if the majority of the students that you're teaching are Dutch, when it comes to the IB, the literature or Lang and Lit, you obviously want well. There's a big deal in most international schools for there to be representation for the mother tongue. So you want to try and have a lot of different kind of like uh, writers or voices, whatever, from around the world to try and best represent your school community. But obviously that's not the case in your school because I would imagine that, that the majority of them are, if not all of them, are Dutch. So when they get into the IBDP, um, what kind of conversation do you have within your department about where um, certain texts should be coming from? Are are any of them in Dutch, obviously translated into English, or are they? have you taken it as an opportunity to study texts from further afield? Uh, yes, that's latter um mm. there is no dutch at all um the only thing we might sometimes do is um look at translation um that can be very basic and can be done with outside the the texts that we've set for the course so something as straightforward as miffy uh the the children's the ra- book the rabbit yeah. thing okay the rabbit thing. <laughs> it's a it's a it, i mean it's it's by a dutch writer and ah, right. everyone knows them and it's very simple and we sometimes take them uh, to show how hard it is to do translation ah, yeah, yeah. so they'll have to come up with their own translations for instance but other than that we see the IB course as a way to show our students that there is a different world so we don't really want to see representations of them in, in or we don't really want to but we don't offer that they already mm-hmm. Um, because it's not their language A. I mean, they sit the language A exam, but their A language is Dutch for 99% of students. And they'll read all kinds of novels and poems for Dutch as well. What's, um, so what, what, what kind of texts have you used of late in the, the English stream? So this year, we read this new text by Aldous Huxley called Brave New World. You may have heard of it. It's all the rage. Um, <laughs> That went fairly well because um, it's it's weird. The students mm. found it very very difficult to understand, especially in the beginning. I think chapter three is this almost stream of consciousness yeah. uh, change of focalizers. Um, we often do "Fearless Child" by Delene Mathie. It's a South African novel, and and there is a link, of course, to Dutch colonial history. Yeah. Um, what else? Let me. See, we've done Kendrick Lamar this year. Oh, uh, really? Um, uh, to Pimp a Butterfly, which was, was quite difficult um, to get into because um, very few of my students were into rap music. Uh, I myself am no expert. So it was a, a chance really for myself as well to immerse myself in the genre and to, to read up on it. Um, yeah. And I think it worked fairly well um it was, students were interested it gave them a, a new perspective on music they they sometimes knew but also the language of rap music and um the fact that that too is a style of and, and an art form mm. and not just you know and it's not just what you you might think uh, um take it as on a face value yeah i agree 
if if um sorry yeah no go ahead no they did find it fairly hard to then sort of pick apart the text and analyze it Mm. um it was it was hard to go beyond the surface level level um Mm. so that was uh that was something that next year we'll have to look into and, and and see how we can maybe support them a bit better was it did uh, for that? Like, I, I am quite curious to do some Kendrick Lamar or like um, uh, something in that genre. Do you only look at the lyrics, or are you also looking at, I don't know, the beat or the 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 samples that are in it, or is it purely the the words on the paper? No, the the, the samples and, uh, and 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 who's sampled. So, I mean, he has a conversation with Tupac, for instance, um, and then the, the the words are relevant, but it's also relevant. Um, who says it and the same is true for i think the first lines on the on the album are every n-word is a star uh, which is sampled i forget by or from whom but it was a 1970s artist who was one of the first to try and reclaim the word with a sense of pride oh, so the fact that the album opens with that um yeah it's very relevant it's quite significant yeah, yeah. if if um uh, you've got to kind of like forgive my um, uh, idiocy here, but when 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 they're doing Dutch as like their Lang A course, who is who are the sort of um, the seminal or like canonized? Who's the writer in Dutch literature that they like everyone in in Holland will have heard of? Uh, Harry Mullish, who's also on the uh, on the IB list. Um, for translated works. Um, who else? Tim Krabbe, uh, Marga Minko, uh, Herman Koch, nowadays, much more modern, Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer. And, and, and the latter, I think, would also be interesting to, uh, to read in translation for uh, either you or your listeners. Mm. He writes about internationalization. So he has a, a book called Grand, Ho- Grand Hotel Europe, um, mm. translating off the cuff, uh, which is about tourism and the impact it has on the world. Um, and there's a novel, which I know has been translated into English, La Superba, which is about Genoa and how different immigrants um, live their lives in a, such an old city and sort of the juxtaposition of someone who's come to Italy on a, on a wobbly boat versus this English professor who lives the high life. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a pretty intense reading experience. Mm, okay. I'll it. look in, I'll, I'll try and um, I'll do my best with uh, like searching for them and, and, and stick them in the kind of like the, the links uh, along with the kind of podcast notes. Um with regard to like the the students that you do teach you who are in the stream that uh, you and your colleagues um, are in charge of uh, teaching, so to speak, what specific challenges do do they face at Rhinelands in English? And um, like, what are the sort of specific kind of uh, issues that they have with their English learning and how do you try and overcome them? The main issue is that they all speak Dutch better than they speak English. Mm. Um and in order for them to improve, they have to practice. Um, but it's, it's a very strange situation to find yourself in as a, as a teenager, 
that you want to speak to your friends and that you consciously use a language that both of you don't speak as well as another language that you have in common. Mm. Um, and that is something that especially as they, you know, hit puberty, uh, gets harder and harder. Yeah. Um, also, in the first three years out of six, um, they'll take about 25, 50-minute classes in English every week. And then in the final few years, because all of their final exams have to be in Dutch, um, most subjects are taught in Dutch again. Um, so that means that they have a relatively small number of classes then taught in English. Mm. Um, and it becomes less of a thing for them. So they don't really improve that much anymore in the last year or so, year or two, um, simply because they don't have the need to speak English. I mean, they're in a, really that bilingual department is, is a little bubble within a vast Dutch world. The school is Dutch. Um, some of the subjects are in Dutch. Their family speak Dutch, their friends speak Dutch, their sports clubs, everything is, uh, is Dutch. It's just them uh, mm. who, who, who as, a, as an 11 or 12 year old make the decision that, oh, I'll try and do this thing where I'll, I'll learn a lot of English and, and, and mm. be able to go on uh, to university in uh, maybe, maybe uh, take a course in English there. Yeah. There's a bit of a, when, um, if you're in a situation in, uh, such as I am in, in Hong Kong, where um, it's it's a mirror, it's a similar situation, except, you know, you just trade Dutch for, for Cantonese or Mandarin as, the, as the, the language that they're speaking to each other. There is kind of overtones of this kind of colonial past when you've got the white teacher or the British teacher at the front, you know, insisting or asking them to speak English. And that's always kind of a bit of a you know, a, a quite a difficult moment. But I guess, like, how punitive uh, are you as teachers when, um, like, do they if they have a tendency to speak Dutch in the classroom, is there any sort of, like, is there, is there a punishment system? Is there, like, how do you deal with that in terms of the culture of promoting English and, and that kind of thing as a, as a Dutch speaker yourself? Um, generally... They'll um, they'll correct themselves after they've been corrected by a, okay. by a teacher. <laughs> That's good. Um, we do have uh, other than the, the marks that they get on the report cards, we have a column for use of English, which is not necessarily their level, but the extent to which they try and speak English to mm -hmm. each other, to teachers, and whether they, for instance, keep an idiom file in, in which uh, they yeah. write down uh, new words that they come across. Um, so there is that, um, but we're not really punitive. Uh, I don't really think it works no, to, to I punish agree. them. I, 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 do, I have in the past, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I won't ask a couple of times. Uh, so there, there, have been, there, there have been some measures where I've, I've, I've given them the task to to write down, you know, 10 new words they, they learned that week and, and come up with a yeah. translation, a description, an example sentence, for instance. Um, but I guess that was more to, to make them aware of how many new things they learn if they're open to it yeah. um, than to punish them for having spoken Dutch. Yeah. 
I, 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 I do agree with you though that the the punishment side of things is very but it seems like the thing you go to when you're like a, a younger teacher or a relatively new teacher and you, you quickly find out that it doesn't work at all they'll find increasingly more sophisticated ways of kind of getting around your uh your uh your rules so to speak or your expectations um yeah, and I, I guess also if if they speak dutch all the time then apparently you're not you're not giving them enough reason to speak english mm, i'm not yeah. saying that it's all the teacher's fault um but there, i mean yeah it, if there is a task that can only be executed in english they'll, they'll do that yeah i I, so- find, I find that often when students speak a lot of dutch there is something wrong with my lesson prep. Mm. Um, and this is the same is true for if they're unruly. That's mm. generally the same. Uh, yeah. yeah. There's a lot to be said for intrinsic motivation. I think they, they've got a very strong, well, a very sophisticated understanding of the worth that you have to offer as a teacher, I guess. So I agree with you on that one. Your preparation is pretty pivotal. Um, when it, when it comes to preparation, then how I, can speak specifically about Sassenheim if you'd like, um, or, or the Netherlands more broadly. But what um, part does technology play in delivering the English curriculum at your school? I'm not sure to what extent it plays a, a massive role. Um, we 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 have the learner portfolio, yeah, um, in a SharePoint environment at the moment. Not too fond of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, all of the students do have laptops. Um, which I wasn't too happy about either when they introduced it four years ago. They do still have books, so their bags have become heavier. Um, but I do have to say that when we went into lockdown and online teaching, we were able to set that up really, really quickly because every student had an, uh, a Microsoft 365 account and every student had a laptop. Um, and that really helped. Um, but I would say... Um, Technology is quite often optional, um, mm. and of course, in um, in, in, in doing uh, formative assessment, we we'll use things like I don't know, lesson up, or you know, Socrative, you, you know, the shebang. Yeah. Um, but other than that, no, not necessarily. Have you have you got any uh, any tips for me? I think the, the, I think your your answer there is quite typical of a number of heads of department or English teachers that I've asked over the weeks and months doing this and it's kind of it's all I think optional is the is the key word there it's it's always kind of I've never heard someone say I found this app or this platform or this gadget and it is completely revolutionized the way that I've no one said that and I don't anticipate anyone ever will I think anything is an add-on in terms of like it can give you 10-15% um, and I think it can add 10%, but quite as easily it can decrease productivity or attention or, or motivation by 10% as well. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I've, I suppose it's a bit of a holy grail thing like with the uh, English teachers. I'm hoping that one day I ask one of them something and they'll say, oh, there's this brilliant thing. It basically allows students to read the entirety of a novel in one hour. But until that fateful day, uh, maybe, uh, yeah, the brave new world kind of uh, illusion before was uh, a good kind of indicator of how technology is not, uh, not quite all the, everything we uh, expected it would be in terms of English. I mean, you can't get away from the fact that at the end of the day for the English the curriculum, 
the book is the book, the text is the text, the words are on the page, and there's not that much you can do to get around it. You can give them an audio book version. Maybe we've done that with dyslexic students. Uh, yeah. And then you just turn the speed up to times two, which is quite a good thing. Um, but apart from that, it's, yeah, from a literature standpoint. Yeah, I've done similar things. And also I, I, I've told students when, when preparing, you know, see if you can find a PDF version and you can control yeah. F and sort of find yeah, yeah, instances yeah, yeah. of certain uh, certain words are yeah, uh, used. Um, we also started using a program called Test Correct, but it's not necessarily in the English department only, but it's uh, it's an online testing platform where you do assessment with the students. So they first sit the test mm. and then you discuss the answers to the test and students have to mark two answers given by um, by their classmates. And they don't know who wrote the answers, but they do have to think about, oh, is this a correct answer? Is it maybe, you know, two out of three points, oh, full marks? Um, and then if, because and every answer is checked by a student twice. And if they are in agreement, then as a teacher, you don't get that answer back. Um, and in the end, everyone receives feedback to their, uh, their tests. Um, but they've, um, they have to really critically engage with yeah. answers given and sort of ask themselves, why is this a correct or an incorrect answer? And it makes the assessment more of a, um, a learning experience as well. That is good. Yeah, that's a nice idea. I think with any, uh, again, it's kind of like sort of, I suppose, significant that you say there, it's not necessarily just English because I can see the application of that being slightly more uh, effective in maths, for example, than than history or English, but that is still good. What was it called, Harm? Sorry, Test Correct. Test Correct. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, definitely. And, and it's useful for uh, maybe ESL students because basically our uh, students start yeah. out as, as, as ESL students. Um, rather than uh, English lit or language students. Mm. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I've, uh, funnily enough, I, I've, I've sort of watched quite a lot of um, things about the Netherlands of late, the Netherlands and Germany and uh, and things like that in terms of like what, the way of life and that kind of thing, because obviously none of us or a lot of us can't travel at the moment. Um, and I was kind of doing some like a virtual traveling, watching stuff about Amsterdam and Berlin and these things. Um, what's you, you kind of mentioned a, a little bit before we sort of started recording with regard to the commute, but what what's it like in terms of work-life balance um, in the Netherlands and where you live? How is um, how is work treated and, and, and would you say that you have like a healthy work-life balance? I would say so, yeah. Um, we have a, a culture of part-time workers in the Netherlands. So in my school, there are about 120 teachers. We're a fairly big school with 13 or 1400 students. Uh, it's a public school. Basically, all schools in the Netherlands are public schools, with the exception of, you know, a few small private ones. And the international ones are often either, you know, private or partly private. Um, I am one of 10 colleagues, maybe, that work full time. So we have the vast majority working, you know, 0.8, uh, four day work weeks. Um, and that is either because you know they they want to have a life outside of work 
or it's because they are very um, critical of their own work and they do work five days, but they don't, you know, mm. they're not able to fit in um, all the um, all the um, all the work in, in, in five days, in five four or five days in five days. So they'll officially work four days, but they'll spend their day off working as well. Um, because most of us live fairly close by, there is, there's not much of a, a commute, so you don't lose a lot of time. We're free to come and go as we please, um, as long as you teach your classes. Mm. Um, I tend to show up fairly early, 7.30, 7.45, and our first classes start at 8.30. Um, and I'll stay long as well, but that means I don't do much work in the evenings or at the weekend with the exception of, you know, if, if we've had test weeks. There's also a, a difference, I guess, in uh, what course you teach, because uh, I guess that's true everywhere. Um, if I teach first and final year English classes, and I, if I only taught them, I'd have five classes uh, or five groups and that'd be a full-time job. But if I taught history, I'd have 11 groups um, mm -mm. because they have two or three hours a week and I'll have yeah. five. So that also gives me a bit more breathing space because I don't have to cram everything in. Mm. I can easily you know, see something on the news and decide, oh, that will be my lesson tomorrow mm. and um, come up with, a, with an assignment then. So, yeah, quite, quite a lot of freedom. Uh, I'd say the the pay is uh, it's decent. Yeah, um, it's it's quite interesting what you said about the fact that because my first question when we were like before the thing started was that obviously you must live in The Hague or Amsterdam because your school is somewhere in between, and as you sort of alluded to there, like you don't because you don't want to have to. You said before like a commute isn't really a thing because everyone cycles which i thought was just uh i don't know like stereotype or a myth or something like that but it's a stereotype but for a reason yeah yeah is it kind of because i suppose how long would it take you to get to the hague or amsterdam via train or car or whatever from where you are 20 minutes yeah so because the the tendency would be i suppose in the uk at least i don't know about any other country if you if you worked on the outside of London, you'd probably you might want to live near the school, I suppose, but most of the time you're drawn to like the the happening places, as it were, in, in London, you know, like central London, and then you'd do like this commute of death for like an hour every day back and forth. Um is that what what's that that's quite interesting to me. Um how how come is that the case all over the country? Is it just you want to be as as local as possible to the school? Well, I mean, we're in the West, so in the province of Zuid-Holland, and the, 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 the two Western provinces, and then maybe the one to the east of it, Utrecht, combined, I think they house about 60, 65% of the population. We have 12 provinces. So everything is closer by here. Um, I'm currently in Leiden, which is uh, an old town, but it's it will, it will take you quite a bit to find open spaces because 
uh, towns have expanded and sort of everything's mm. touching. So yes, a lot of, you want to be in the, the happening places. I think, I mean, surely um, that is true for, uh, for, for students and, and young teachers as well. Mm. Some of them do live in Amsterdam and The Hague. On the other hand, if you hop on the train, um, the train to The Hague from Leiden is 12 minutes. And I think the train mm. to Amsterdam is maybe 25. And unlike the UK, for instance, trains are not that expensive either. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 Fair enough. Um, when, um, I, I, again, like in my kind of uh, little exploration on YouTube with regards to like the Netherlands and Germany and that kind of thing, I did see quite a lot of videos which were um, claiming certain kind of like pedagogical approaches that the Netherlands have, which make the children the happiest in the world and this kind of thing. I remember one teacher talking about the fact that they don't give homework to students under the age of whatever it was, six, seven, eight years old or something like that. Um, can you talk about like, what, what, what is your particular school's attitude to homework, marking, frequency of work, turnaround time, that kind of thing. And is it, are those sort of things that get said about the Netherlands and school children, is there any kind of um, reality to them? Well, I mean, there are many different kinds of schools, from schools that don't mark until mm. the final exams, although they are not very common, um, to schools that mark or, or test a lot. Um, and the curriculum is quite heavily laden, especially in the first few years of secondary education. So I know in our year three, students sit 12 different subjects, I think. Um, and I once counted... Uh, because there's a lot of assessment, small quizzes. Uh, we have four test weeks a year. After every term, there's a test week. Um, that in year three, students got 132 marks over the year. Mm. Great. Um, and then the result is that they'll focus on what's marked, obviously. Um, and earlier you talked about um, <clears throat> intrinsic motivation. We really, I mean, I guess we, I don't, not just in our school or in Holland, but I think in the, the educational community, we have a tendency of making sure that students lose whatever, <clears throat> excuse me, whatever intrinsic motivation they, they had mm -hmm. um, by focusing so heavily on assessment. I also tell students that I tutor, I say, it's really, really hard because you go through all these things in a year. You know, you're, you, you may have a, a sick family member. You've fallen in love and you've, you've been late to school a couple of times. You've helped people out. And in the end, you're just a list of numbers. Mm -hmm. And then students um, are promoted to the next year based on those, those grades. Um, and luckily, we have in our school now a tendency more and more <clears throat> To, uh, to also look at the, the personal circumstances and to see if there is, you know, uh, improvement or not. Um, but I personally feel like we assess way, way too much. And mm. it's a vicious cycle because as long as you keep doing that, um, students will also use their time as efficiently as possible. And, and that then is to focus on what is next 
you know, was urgent. Mm. Um, we do we we have tried to come up with um, in our bilingual department. We started a new subject this year, uh, which is loosely based on Cambridge Global Perspectives, oh, yeah. um, but it gives students a lot of opportunity to sort of further look into subjects they found interesting in, for instance, science or history or geography. Um, and they're not marked. We're actually looking into having them self-assess. Um, and I asked my year one students what they thought of it. And they all really enjoyed it. They all learned a lot, mm. even though they didn't really know what it was for. Mm. Um, but that's part of this bilingual educational program that we have, which rests on three pillars. First, obviously, being English. Um, but the others are personal growth and uh, global citizenship. Mm. And, and that is really what we're, uh, yeah, we're trying to teach them without necessarily uh, marking them. That's interesting that you kind of said that they, they, they kind of came to understand it as like they, they didn't know why they were doing it. Um, it kind of reminds me about some of the initial discussions you have around like inquiry-based teaching and this kind of thing at IB level where it's you almost have to deprogram the students at times away from that kind of summative assessment focused attitude towards education in order to get them to understand that no, no it is worthwhile to kind of like research something that you are genuinely interested in or that genuinely is relevant to you and kind of um, make it a part of school it is it can be a ironically quite a tough sell to some students um uh, learning has become something external to them because mm. they they want the school or the teacher to tell them what they have to learn mm. and almost what to you know what's the right answer so mm. with something like textual analysis they go well would this be a good answer <laughs> but can you can you prove it can, can you can you find evidence in the text because if so then yes yeah but will you agree with it it doesn't matter <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. I mean, they, they've learned that in school. They've learned that there is a right answer. Yeah. It's, it's kind of heartbreaking whenever you have that conversation with students when it's you've done an anthology of admittedly kind of assigned short stories, let's say, or poetry from Cambridge. Um, you know, you had to teach them. It's not like the teacher had control over it within reason. And you sort of ask them which their favourite was, either at the beginning of the scheme of work or the end of it and it's just like oh, i don't know don't know don't didn't really think about it like that and you're like oh that's such a you're allowed to hate some of them you know you're allowed to kind of dislike some and like some but never mind um lastly harm have, have you got any kind of recommendations for resources that you tend to use um that other english teachers could also use to continue improving um I quite liked, I quite liked one app that I used, um, and it's especially useful now that um, students are still in quarantine sometimes and maybe home and a lot of the hybrid teaching. And it's called Lesson Up. I'm mm. not uh, sure if you're familiar with it, mm -mm. but it um, gives you the uh, the opportunity to share uh, loads of different kinds of questions, slides, videos, add questions to videos, and it works very well. Um, I'm guessing that many people uh, in the past have listed the uh, In Thinking website. Not um, that many, actually, no, but it is a good one. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great resource. Um, mm. 
Brad Philpott has uh, has a lot of good stuff uh, going on. Uh, Philpott Education, I think his website is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've we've used that. Um, I personally quite like The Economist. Mm-hmm. Um, as much maybe for uh, ESL purposes as for uh, um, IB purposes. Um, you can get a, a very cheap trial subscription. We really recommend it. Mm-hmm. It's also not limited to only getting it once in case you're, uh, you want to economize. <laughs> um, yeah, no, um, I'd, I'd say those would be my, uh, my go-to uh, resources. And personally, um, whenever I'm looking for something uh, slightly quirky, I'll try and find, I don't know, Norwegian uh, news websites in English. Uh, there are Dutch ones as well, but many European countries will have local or national news published yeah. in English. And it gives you a, a very different or maybe similar insight into news that, you, that you've consumed as well, but from your own ah, perspective. I see, um, yeah. And you'll get theirs. Yeah, that's a really interesting one, particularly for Langless, actually. That's a really, I've never considered that before, yeah. Mm, okay, yeah, I'm going to try that out myself. Post, for instance, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, um, the only thing that remains for me to say then, Harm, is um, thank you very much for giving me uh, a little slice of your your morning, a summer holiday morning, no less. Are you on the holidays now? No, I'm home. I mean, are you finished for the, the school term or...? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is uh, the, the 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 first week is nearly over now. So uh, oh, we have a few- okay. Yeah. I say okay. Well, I apologise for kind of taking up such an early uh, an early hour of the day for you. But um, yeah, thank you very much for agreeing to kind of chat with me today, and uh, best of luck with the uh, the the summer upcoming summer and the upcoming academic year. Cheers, mate.